Welcome to Street Smart Success. This is Roger Becker, your host. If you're looking for an asset class that is recession resistant and poised for huge growth, look no further than assisted living. Over 10,000 baby boomers turn 75 every day. Today's guest, Lo Hornbuckle, CEO of Sage Oak Assisted Living and Memory Care, is passionate about helping seniors and started out by converting a single-family home into an assisted living facility. Lo now has six eight-bed homes and is doing ground-up construction on much larger facilities. So today we have with us a man from the great state of Texas. And, you know, when most Californians like myself talk about Texas, they don't say the great state and mean it, but but I do, by golly. Uh, and this is a guy that has a lot of varied, varied real estate experience. The bulk of what his attention is in assisted living, but are opportunistic in terms of getting into other asset classes when appropriate as well. And so he is the CEO of Sage Oak Assisted Living and Memory Care and co-founder of Goodhorn Capital. He is Low Horn Buckle Low. Welcome to Street Smart Success. Thanks for having me, Mr. Becker. You bet. And you might have thought that that intro was never going to end. Well, I've heard a version of that intro a couple of times. And so uh, I, I blame myself. <laughs> I blame myself. <laughs> a humble and amusing man. Okay. Because I was wondering when I was going to end it myself. I just kept going on and loving What's it. What's worse is that was the abbreviated bio, right? <laughs> you, you, you cut off like half of that. So, yeah. <laughs> That's fine. I, it's, anno- it's annoying writing your own bio, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, what do you say? I was waxing to the sound of my own voice reading your bio. Anyway, for the listener's sake, uh, we, we will move forward. You know, in our, in our exchange setting this up, I somehow came to the fore that you're actually not from the great state of Texas, but I think you're from another southern state. And where was that? I'm thinking Mississippi, but please correct me if I'm wrong and give me the background. Yeah, so uh, Louisiana is the answer, but I lived on the Louisiana-Texas border. So um, I, you know, I've always been economically and emotionally connected to the state of Texas, even if my zip code was a, a Louisiana zip code, so to speak. So I think I was just uh, just born on the wrong side of a border. So I'm a Texan as far as I'm concerned, but you know I have that Louisiana heritage as well. I see. And, and I've got egg on my face. How embarrassing Mississippi is like not even that was completely wrong well, other than it's culturally in the- Mississippi and Louisiana are very similar, especially in the Gulf Coast region. But um where I'm from is kind of the I-20 corridor. So, you know, I'm like the Dallas to Atlanta corridor as opposed to like the Houston to the, I guess, Destin corridor, you know. So, yeah, no, it's uh, Mississippi's a, a lovely state if uh, if you like that sort of thing. Well, so how did the Hornbuckle family wind up in that locale as opposed to like Chicago or, uh, you know, you know, El Paso or, you know, New York or something? Well, full disclosure, my dad is a complete wild card. And over the years, I've been trying to figure out what stories that he's told me are actually based in history or which stories are just fantastical imaginations of an interesting character. But we ended up in Shreveport uh, directly because uh, my grandfather was an OBGYN and thought there was a supply demand imbalance there. And so he was an OBGYN in Shreveport. And then 
there was some other sides of the family that may or may not have faced some some vigilante justice in Arkansas. Again, not sure what was happening there and decided to flee to Louisiana. So I don't know how much of that is true, but uh, I, I am positive that I come from a long line of very smart, but also borderline outlaws and degenerates. So that is that is my legacy. So I'm, I'm continuing it as best I can. Well, borderline isn't too bad if it's as long as it's not just complete and thorough. Correct. Yeah. No, uh, good people, good people, salt of the earth people, but uh, definitely not uh, not unable to bend a law or rule from time to time. Yeah. <laughs> well, your grandfather, OBGYN, was that your dad's dad or your mom's dad? That was my, that was my father's dad. Yeah. Uh, my mom's side of the family is from a town a couple hours away. Uh, I don't know as much about why they settled there. I would assume that like anyone, when you I don't. I don't really actually know that side of the family's history as well. Uh, yeah, no. My dad's father was an OBGYN, so my grandfather on my, my uh, paternal side was a prominent OBGYN in, in Shreveport, Louisiana. You were describing your dad. So did he go from like job to job, or was he? Did he have something solid, or not really? My dad. No, I mean, he. Uh, he was a. So what happened was my my grandfather died when my dad was twelve. I, I can only imagine what it's like to be, you know, in a formative time in your life and kind of losing your dad. So, you know, the version of the dad that I got was a guy that, you know, had been through some stuff. And uh, he, you know, when you're a child of the 60s and your dad passes away and you decide that you're going to go to four different high schools in four years. And uh, when he went to college, he uh, studied accounting. Uh, he was also he also became a pilot. So he was a CPA pilot. Uh, you know, that that should probably tell you all you need to know that he was kind of a kind of renaissance man in a way. So um, he was an interesting character. And uh, so he spent most of his life as an accountant and then um, eventually didn't work. So it was an interesting career, shall we say. I got it. Okay. Well, I was just curious in that stuff. You know, um, you know, I got some things, a little, a few, a handful of things in common with your dad, believe it or not. Yeah. I mean, I, my dad died young. I went to, you know, I, I was all over the map. The only thing, the only difference is that I hold claim to not only flunking accounting once, but twice, but cannot claim that I did any of that sober. And so, um, but that was a long time ago. And we're here to talk about you, not me. So you went to UT. How, how ultimately did you get into the real estate business and what did you do? Yeah, um, I went to UT for one whole year. I completed one semester and then I dropped out and became a car dealer. So that was interesting. And I was a car dealer for 11 years. Uh, and so I was a history major, thought I was going to go to law school and uh, took a semester off. And, and then uh, over the summer, I sold cars. And I remember very distinctly, I made as much money as my mother, who was a pharmacist and had been a pharmacist for 20 years. And I just thought it was so absurd that in an economy, I could make as much money selling Mitsubishis at 19 years of age um, as my mother did as a trained pharmacist um, and an executive pharmacist at that. I think at that time she was probably the uh, executive director of, of a pharmacy uh, for a hospital chain. So uh, I think when that happened, I realized that uh, one does not need to uh, finish formal education to make their way in the world. And I decided to, uh, you know, uh, sell some cars. So and that launched, ultimately launched my entrepreneurial endeavors, but not initially. 
See, I, I thought you were going to say that, you know, coming from, like you were saying earlier, a, a line of, you know, renegades and degenerates, the, the only logical thing would be to get into the car business. That's correct. Yes, that was I was a duck in water and, and that period of time, <laughs> which I can say now because the statute of limitations have expired on almost all of my crimes. <laughs> so, yeah. I'm obviously teasing you in my advertising business going way back when, and it was, it was teeny. It was just me for years. I had some car dealer clients. My stepfather was a car dealer. So I'm right there with you. But here's the question though, man. So you're doing that like after your, like your first summer, you're a kid. You, you couldn't have been more than 18, 19 years old. And you said you got into the car. Were you ever on the entrepreneurial side, like owned a dealership? Or were you just working at dealerships? Ultimately you became a general manager and you know, yeah. All that cool stuff. Yeah, no, totally. Um, so I, I eventually was the finance director, and we, we had we had several franchises. So we had Honda, Volvo, Jaguar, Land Rover, Mercedes, Sprinter. So I just sort of stayed in, in an apartment, and then just kind of rose to being corporate level employee in in a silo, right? So I ran multiple multiple locations of the finance department. You know, I'm I'm actually business partners with the car dealer. I, I feel pretty confidently that if I wanted to, you know, be a partner in the dealership, it would have happened. A lot of my um, a lot of my uh, peers have gone on to be partners in that that same organization. So, you know, for me, um, I enjoyed the bank side. And, and the thing about uh, being in finance, there's kind of a couple elements to it. Consumers sort of only know one aspect of it, right? They think about the finance person as the person that, you know, does their paperwork and tries to sell them warranties and tire and wheel and gap insurance and all that stuff. But kind of behind the scenes, um, finance managers are selling loans to lenders, right? So, you know, if you've got a 670 credit score and there's a, you know, a tier change, it's a 690, then the finance manager can sometimes use leverage and negotiation to get you qualified for the tier that you don't rightfully qualify for based on the value of that business. And so what I really enjoyed doing was uh, it was relationship selling. You were selling lenders on uh, why a particular person or why a particular deal was was de-risked for the lender. But if you think about that, you're calling the same people over and over and over again, day in and day out. And so, you know, you can burn a bridge very quickly by over-promising a lender to get a deal, a deal funded, but it's not a very long career. Um, and so I enjoyed managing the relationship with the lender. So I've always been a salesperson that when it comes to relationship management, I'm great at sales. When it comes to like transaction, I'm not that great, right? Because in a transaction, um, there's too much market incentives to sort of be dishonest. There's too much market incentives to, you know, just do whatever it takes to get the sale. And that's never really been my mentality. But in a relationship, that's actually punished, right? You can't start a marriage based on lies. You can't start a partnership with misinformation. You can't, you know, you can't, uh, you know, go to a lender over and over and over again and consistently, you know, be unethical or you'll get exposed eventually. Right. So I've always really kind of enjoyed um, managing that relationship and uh, being in a situation that affords me uh, the opportunity to really think about the other party and also to be empathetic to what they need, right? Understanding what's important to the lender and then also understanding what's important to the dealership and the customer and kind of managing that situation. And so in some ways that's really not altogether different from assisted living, right? Cause you've got families and residents in the state and you're managing all these different parties in the same transaction. So I feel very strongly, you know, that that's just kind of my little niche in life, if that makes any sense. Oh, of course it does. What did you do low then after the 11 years in, in the car biz? Yeah. So 
when I was in the uh, when I was in the car business, frankly, I started investing in real estate in 2008, um, and so I was in the car business until 2014. But 2008, I started investing in real estate. You know, doing fix and flips and doing rentals, and so I would kind of manage the car dealership during the day, and then at night I would go lease you know, my rental units to families. And, and, you know, I had a business partner that kind of ran the construction maintenance side of the business. So from like 2010 to 2014, we actually bought like probably 75 houses for rental portfolio. And then we probably flipped another, you know, five or 10 or whatever. So I was basically kind of a part-time real estate professional while I was working the car dealership. So the car business is kind of funny. Everybody starts to take it for granted at some point. And, you know, they start to realize, you know, in the car business, you make a lot of money when you're there. But a lot of people in the car business, they don't make any money if they're not there. And so they always try to search these side hustles, right? They always look for these other opportunities. And I know this show is kind of about street smarts. And, and uh, you know, so I've obviously tried a lot of things that were dumb. I've done a lot of dumb businesses, but real estate always spoke to me and always really loved real estate. And uh, I don't think that I would categorize a lot of what we did in those days as being very successful in the real estate business, mostly because I always kind of joke, you ever go to these conferences and then you meet all these people and they had this thing in common. They were all in California in the 70s. And now all of a sudden they're <laughs> real estate geniuses, you know? And and you sort of realize like, you know, every even though everyone kind of says, you know, hey, invest where the numbers make sense and live where you want to live, almost everybody that starts in real estate starts in their own backyard, right? Almost everyone. And that's just a, to a T, the story that I hear over and over again. And unfortunately, the economy of Shreveport, Louisiana is not particularly good. You don't get appreciation. Um, it's a difficult economy. And so, you know, cutting your teeth in that market, I learned a ton and I learned a lot. And, but I don't know that it was financially successful, but I learned a lot. And then I took those lessons and I did the smart thing. And I set up shop in a place like Dallas where, you know, the economic opportunities are, are endless um, and the supply demand of population growth and jobs are all heavily in the favor of industry because, you know, there's just a lot of people here and there's a lot of people that continue to come. And, and a lot of those people need things, uh, including, you know, assisted living and memory care. And so um, it really kind of started me on the journey of, you know, really understanding macro things because, you know, you could be the, if you were the best, most successful real estate investor in Shreveport, you might not be on anyone's radar anywhere else, right? Because it's just too small of a pond. And, um, you know, whereas, you know, if you, you've been investing in Dallas over the last 30 years, you've done very well. You know, if you've been investing in some of these other growth markets, you know, if you've been in Memphis for 20 years, you've done very well. And and so um, I just kind of learned that lesson. And I sort of learned that I didn't want to be in, in low income housing. I didn't want to, you know, I didn't want to do Section 8 housing. And it's not a knock against it. It's just personally, it's not what I wanted to do. Because, you know, if you really think about it, you know, the early what I said was I like relationship management. And I think a lot of times some of those low income housing deals, they start to look like a transaction more so than a relationship. Um, because, you know, you go collect your rent and they got a story and you're like, well, I can't, I can't sell your story to the bank. I got to, you know, we need money. Right. And so we dealt a lot of that. And what I found is there's a lot of other industries where you, you don't necessarily have to have to do that. And very few assisted living and memory care people pay their rent late. You know, so it's just a whole different. So I learned a lot about what I didn't want to do in those days, if that makes any sense. It does. Hey, Street Smart listeners, I'd like to introduce a great partner for you. As you know, insurance is one of the biggest expenses on the P&L. That's why I'm recommending Assured Partners. 
Assured Partners helps you lower risk and, therefore, can save you tons of money down the road. They insure over 2 million market rate and affordable units and are the sixth largest insurance property broker in the U.S. If you want a roll-your-sleeves-up partner that blankets you with service, give Robert Band, vice president, a call. Robert thinks like a CFO because he was a CFO for many years. Give Robert a call now at 305-467-5909. You'll be glad you did. Where were you working in the car business and where were you when you bought all those homes? Yeah, so I was in Shreveport, Louisiana. So I bought about 75 houses in Shreveport and then I was in the car business in Louisiana. And the car business was pretty good in Shreveport. You know, there was obviously a lot of success there, but, you know, ultimately there was not population growth. There was not job growth. And so, you know, real estate really doesn't make sense from a, from a, like the economics of investing in real estate in Shreveport, Louisiana, it's more of an opportunity cost. You can deploy capital in other markets. You can deploy energy in other markets more successfully. I just happened to be born there and I just happened to live there and work there. And so it really taught me the lesson that be in the right market, you know, and, and so it really taught me, you know, I basically learned market selection the hard way. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll tell you what, even though I'm in California now, Bay Area specifically, seven miles as the crow flies from San Francisco, I'm, but I'm originally from Ohio. And, and frankly, I would never have been smart enough to know this when I made the move when I was right out of college. I just moved to move because I knew somebody out here, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, I'll tell you what I've done, you know, I've amassed some worth just because I'm here as opposed to there, you know, frankly, just around small houses that I've owned, I mean, nothing really fancy, but just being in the right, you know, in a place where, I mean, you know, my brother bought his home for 170 in Cleveland. I bought mine for 400, that home, which I ended up selling, got to be like worth about 2.8 mil it went down with covid and his is worth about 170,100. I'm exaggerating but you know what I mean. So, yeah, no, I I get it loud and clear. So you when did you move to Dallas? Yeah. So, I I moved to Dallas in 2014. Um, so I was, well, end of 2013, 2014, and then through a series of events, started Stage Oak, which is the assisted living and memory care company in 2015. Um, so when I moved to Dallas, I really wasn't I wasn't sure what I was going to do. I ultimately, I, apply, I knew that I could go into the car business and could do so successfully, but the car business in Dallas is pretty different than the car business in Shreveport, Louisiana, in my opinion. Uh, it's definitely a different business. And so that was kind of a backup plan, but I really wanted to, to kind of give uh, a pursuit of, of, of a real estate career um, an opportunity. So, you know, I toyed around with becoming an agent. Um, and ultimately decided that, you know, that was that was a path, but that the best path was that I was going to get into the apartment business. And uh, I understood the apartment business and I thought the numbers were good. And so I took a job. And so I managed a 480 unit or approximately a 400, maybe it was, it was a little less, but over 400, less than 500 unit apartment complex in Fort Worth for about a year. And um, my thought process there was, hey, I'm going to learn a lot, right? Because I've been managing, you know, a 75 unit portfolio of my own homes. So I didn't necessarily know that I needed that prop. I didn't know that I didn't need the fundamentals of property management, but I did need the fundamentals of how a big company did property management and the fundamentals of, of how you, you, you dealt with those things and built, you know, built the team and how you structured things and, you know, how to maintenance staff and all that stuff. So I did that for about a year and, and I learned a good amount, but I quickly realized that I kind of hit my limit on what I was going to learn in that, in that role. Um, because there wasn't a lot of access to ownership and there wasn't a lot of access to 
the people that I aspired to be, you know? And so after a year, I quit that job. And then the next thing you know, I'm starting an assisted living and memory care company. And there's a couple steps in between, but that's the basic gist of what happened. I see. And when you said you were managing, like, were you like the onsite? Did you live in the complex and you were like the guy and everybody reported up to you, leasing agents and maintenance people? Or what does that mean? Yeah, no, I was the property manager. Um, So I was the head site manager of the location Uh, because I was kind of new the property manager took over two properties and so I was the property manager with a little extra oversight from a person that was managing two properties simultaneously because it's not common I mean I started as a assistant manager and within like six months they promoted me to the property manager with no prior experience other than you know my own stuff and so my career trajectory was sort of strange but I mean I got the job in a weird way like I couldn't get hired by an apartment complex because I was making a lot of money in my old job. And so nobody understood why a guy that was making five, six, seven times what he was what he was being offered as a salary to be a leasing agent or an assistant manager at apartment complex. No one could understand what I was trying to do. And so they didn't get it, you know, and I had people that were like laughing at me and I was like, well, yeah, I want to do this because I want to own apartment complexes. They're like, oh, okay. Because, you know, for them, the idea of like owning an apartment, com- if you're like a regional manager, the idea, or even a property manager, like the idea of owning an apartment complex, I, I think that's so foreign to the to those folks. Um, I think that they, and I don't know whether it's by design or just education, but um, it's almost like they don't realize how incredibly easy it could be to be to go from a regional manager to owning apartment complexes. And I think that um, you know I've got a friend that's that's a regional manager uh, and does like I don't know how many units, maybe a couple thousand, and she's always like talking, you know and we, we have a good relationship. She's always talking to me like, you should ask for equity. Like you're the key to this whole thing. Like you should be a partner. And uh, she just always thinks it's so crazy that I think that way. And, um, you know, and that's, that's not a knock. It's just her mentality is I'm working for the owners and my mentality is figure out a way to be the owner. How did you decide on assisted living? Um, so my, uh, there was kind of a couple things. Um, my dad, um, had a really bad experience in hospice uh, in 2014, and um, it uh, was hard on the family. And uh, you know, they, we really felt like the hospice company really failed him and really failed us. And uh, the statute of limitations on that in Louisiana is a year. Um, you get to figure out what you want to do. And I spent the better part of the year working with my stepmother trying to figure out, like, do we want to do something here? Do we feel like we need to sue the hospice company? And that was really difficult. And and then I kind of just randomly heard a podcast about converting houses into assisted living and memory care. And, and then, you know, I went to a seminar that was about apartments and they kind of talked about independent living and how they thought that that was a great business opportunity. And so I just kind of started to have all these things kind of point me in the direction of, of seniors or taking care of people. And I think that my dad's passing really opened me up to that because I think in like 2013 or 2014, if you would have said, hey, Low, you're going to wind up starting an assisted living and memory care company, and that's going to be your passion. I would have bet you a large sum of money you would have been wrong. And um, it, I just needed to have that life experience. And, you know, when you lose a parent under difficult circumstances, it, it can it can definitely change who you are. And I think that happened for me. And, you know, I'm definitely not the same person that I was in 2014. I, I, you know, I, I like a lot of the changes, a lot of things that are better. Um, and um, but I had to become somebody different. And, you know, um, you can't be in my, in my opinion, and there are people that are. But in my opinion, the last thing you ever want in the world is someone who's a pure capitalist running a nursing home. 
You don't want that. And, you know, capitalists will argue that point with me. But what I'll tell you is, is that if your only focus is on dollars and cents and not on people, uh, you'll lose sight of what's important. You have to balance moral concerns. You have to balance ethical concerns with the pursuit of profit, uh, especially when you're taking care of people. Um, and I think the companies that that care that, you know, it's 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 uh, it shows. And, you know, especially in a pandemic like we're in now, you know, the, the companies that care, they're willing to do stuff that maybe isn't great for the bottom line, but that their spirit, their soul, their conscience would never allow them to do anything other than that. Um, and there's a lot of people out in the out, out in the marketplace that that think about it only in terms of dollars and cents. So I always kind of tell everybody, you know, if you only care about money, you know, there's a lot of money you can make in arming child soldiers. You can make a good living in arming child soldiers, but I'm not sure that that checks off the other boxes for you. So, uh, it, you know, the pursuit of money on its own is the only outcome uh, is disturbing to me. And um, I think that there's probably some times in my life where I was a capitalist and now I'm a person that I think I try to. I try to be an impact investor. I try to be a conscious capitalist. I try to act myself like, are we making the community, the world, this person's life, are we making it better, right? And, you know, if we're making it better and we're earning a profit, awesome. You know, we've got to have both, not just one. I think that will, I'm sure it probably already is, but that will continue to serve serve you incredibly well would be my guess. So is that what you did then is did you go convert a house into a facility? Yep. So uh, I heard the podcast in 2015. And by the end of the year, we had started construction on a conversion project. Um, what would at the time be our flagship community. And then in 2016, I acquired an existing but struggling uh, facility. And then 2017, we we, we added three more. And, and then um, then we started working on our campus design, um, which is you know kind of our signature product now and kind of the future of what we're going to do. Who's the we in this? The we has changed a lot over the years. Um, it's kind of funny. So when you, you there's been a consistent person. Um, so I kind of have a so the cart the the gentleman who owns the car dealership. So almost like in a Silicon Valley like play, you know, because a lot of times when you leave a tech company and you go start your own company, you like get the other company to invest in your project, you know. Well, so I, when I came to him, so I came to them in like 2011. I said, hey, guys, I'm leaving in two years. And they're like, what? I'm like, I'm quitting in two years. It's a two-year notice. <laughs> and I said, I know this is going to take some time to replace me. And, you know, this is what I want to do. And I'm happy to be happy here. But I said, I don't want to live in Shreveport anymore. So there's nothing you can do to keep me to stay. I love the job. I love everything here. But I want to leave. I want to move. And I just was kind of tired of that lifestyle. And so um, over the years, we talked. And he'd, he'd been an investor in other things. And sometimes it was a debt product or an equity product. And so I came to him and said, hey, I've got this business idea. Uh, it's going to sound crazy. I'm going to get in the assisted living and memory care business. And if I do one home, it'll be just a mediocre deal for you. If I, if I have a 1,000 beds one day, you're going to want to adopt me. And, uh, you know, he, to his credit, he has a philosophy. He does not bet on the horse. He bets on the jockey. So um, he's kind of always consistently backed whatever play that I've made. I think it's worked out very well for both of us. So that's been kind of a key partnership that I've had. Um, So essentially, I quit a company and I got funding um, from that company to start the new company. So that's kind of the roundabout way that it happened. I think that's one of the more interesting parts. You know, I think that's a lesson that I think a lot of people in their story can learn is that, you know, a lot of people when they quit a company could never get the company to invest in their projects, right? So a lot of it's about how you do it. And so I think we just had a unique relationship that we both managed. And I kind of, we're kind of getting back to that conversation where I really enjoy um, relationship management sales as opposed to transactional sales. 
So it speaks volumes to you, man, as a person, if you have your ex-employee investing in your business. I mean, that speaks, yeah, like I said, says an awful lot about who you are, integrity, relationship. Uh, so, I mean, that that is immense. The first project was a conversion, a house conversion, and then you did an acquisition. Was the one that you acquired, had that been a conversion as well, or was that was that constructed as initially as a, a assisted living facility? Yeah. So I've never, so all of the deals that I purchased have at one time been, well, in this phase of the business had been at one time been a single family home that was converted into an assisted living facility. And I think, look, I mean, obviously you're not asking this question, but I think it's a good way to share it. I think the thing that I always kind of tell people is I think one of the things that, that has served me well and really helped me um, in my career has been the concept that I, put value on experience and education. So I'll sometimes do some things that aren't really about money that are solely about getting educated. And so I consciously set out to, and the first couple of properties were corporate owned. Um, and then, you know, I said, okay, well, let's raise money for one. We didn't need to. Um, frankly, we were a long way away from uh, the initial investor, the primary investor needing, you know, anybody to invest in his deals. But I came to him and was like, look, man, what if I want to do a $100 million project one day that takes $20 million in equity or $25 million in equity? Like, I don't know your financial situation that well, but I'm going to assume that's going to be a bit of a strain. So I think we need to start consciously raising money and de-risking deals and, and having it to where we can grow without you having to put capital into deals. So we did that, you know, and, and when I bought communities, I, I purposely bought communities that were existing and then I purposely bought communities that were not existing. Um, and I did all different types of licensure changes and all that stuff because I just wanted the experience and I wanted to I wanted to have that knowledge base. And right now we're developers and we design and operate uh, new build communities. And we've got um, you know about um, about fifty million dollars in uh, projects right now that are uh, in a couple of states. And I don't think I could be doing any of that if I hadn't consciously built my resume and done those things because I don't think a bank would have financed me and I don't think that um, anyone would have trusted me. But uh, what I've kind of shown is that I can take on a project that's not exactly in my wheelhouse, but that's close. And then I'll do the work to bridge the gap between my prior experiences. And I synthesize what the differences are pretty well. And um, so our community designs are awesome. And there's not a lot of people in the marketplace, frankly, you know, I know this is not your core business, but there are not a lot of companies that um, design that construct, uh, that raise capital for and operate their own buildings, right? People generally are focused on one part of that process, maybe two, but you meet very few people that can develop a community, design a community, build a community, operate a community, raise capital for those operations. I mean, those are a lot of different skill sets and, uh, you know, we've been able to do that. And uh, what that means in assisted living and memory care, um, because it's not really about ego, it's really about outcomes. Um, development is a compromise process, right? So imagine a situation in which you've got a capital raiser that they have their concerns. You have a developer, they have their concerns. You have a GC, they have their concerns. You have an operator that has their concerns. And so they all kind of get at a table and they all kind of discuss everything and, you know, personalities went out and who has a leverage and all that stuff. And so a lot of projects end up becoming compromises and the mission gets lost. But that doesn't happen with us because I'm the operator. So I would, ne I never, I'm able to make decisions and compromises that don't harm the integrity of the operation. 
operations. And so that's why a lot of facilities don't really work is because they've made compromises that ultimately affect the operations because the operator just didn't have a big enough seat at the table to, to stop them from uh, from cutting this, you know, um, or taking this out of the process. So that's been really cool to kind of see that vertical integration play dividends. So a couple questions is how many, I guess, homes, converted homes, whether you did the conversions yourself or acquired them, how many of those are in the portfolio and how many beds does it represent? That's the first part of the question. And then I'll go to the next one. Yeah. So in Dallas, I have six, eight bed facilities. So a total of 48. I operate five of them. I lease out one to an operator. And then in Lake Charles, I have five 16 bed care homes on a campus. So 80 beds. And then in Denton, we're building uh, six 16 bed communities that'll open in May, June of 2022. And so the basic difference is, is that um, we like 16 bed communities um, and then we like them all on one campus. So instead of having six houses spread out in a city, I've got six houses all on one campus. So that's kind of the evolution of what we're doing. Isn't it hard to manage an eight bed facility? Isn't that typically where somebody lives there and does is a jack of all trades? I mean, how do you manage that? I went to a, a conference, assisted living conference. Somehow I know which one it was. Yeah, you were probably there in Houston at Nick. Were you there? No, 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 I was. Oh, there's one in Houston. Okay. They're starting to crop up everywhere. Uh, and it's really. That business, and unfortunately for me to say, I've been in it, it's very much caveat emptor. Um, the buyer must beware because there's a lot of people that are like, hey, I've solved this problem. Um, and I'm like, well, have you? You know, So a lot of people in the education business don't really know their business very well. And it's one of the reasons why I didn't stay in the education business was because I was kind of focused on doing the actual business rather than educating people on doing the business. And it's definitely different skill sets. Was not able to add that to my vertical integration pipeline. But, but yeah, so to, with respect to your question, uh, you're right, uh, 100%. Uh, it is very difficult to scale an eight-bed facility. It does not scale. And what ends up happening is um, most mom-and-pop owners stop at one or two facilities. They they put their heart and soul into the business, and eventually they get tired, they get sick, and they want to take a vacation, and the business dies. So we see that a lot. On the other end of the spectrum, you have these big, big multinational corporations that are just huge and they don't know their residents. They don't know their staff. They don't know anything. It's just all numbers on a spreadsheet, all numbers on a PL column, and the people almost have no meaning. Um, so you kind of have these two big poles. Well, what I love about our campus design is that you get the best of both worlds. You get the personal intimacy of, of, a, of, a, of a small home. But you also get all the scaling and advantages of a big community. And they have their, their pros and cons, right? So ultimately, what I've always told people is, you know, my Dallas operation isn't, isn't I don't think about it as, oh, this care home, this get, it's five or six care homes that combine to be able to afford to have an executive director, to have a wellness director, to be able to have, you know, certain benefits and certain things. So you have to have a portfolio. It's probably for your listeners, you know, nobody very few people that have one rent house have a property management company. You with me, right? They don't. They, they they do it themselves. They take the calls. They unclog things. They call vendors. They you know screen the tenants. Um, but when you have 10 rent houses or 20 rent houses or 30 rent houses or 40 or 50 rent houses, then you get to kind of make a decision. Do I want to bring you know this in-house? Do I want to hire a manager or do I want to hire a third-party property management company? And so um, you have to get to scaling, um, in my opinion, to deliver a good assisted living and memory care product. However, the caveat is there's very little third-party management available 
for small assisted living and memory care facilities. So, um, you know, if you buy an eight bed facility, it's unlikely that you're going to be able to call someone that can credibly run in most cities don't even have this as a service, but third party management just really has never solved the scaling problem. And so everybody that owns care homes and is successful almost to a person manages them themselves in that they hire the employees that manage the facilities. So there's not much third-party management in small assisted living. So it's a very different market. So what does your infrastructure look like then in Dallas with those eight homes then? Do you have an executive director? And a, I do. Okay. And how many people are on that team? Yeah. So in Dallas, uh, frontline staff is about 30 and management staff is about five. It's about one manager per home. And so that's, and that's a couple of nurses, executive director, you know, now that I have, you know, Lake Charles and Denton, I have a regional manager. So, you know, we're, we're purposely building out an infrastructure that is uh, focused and designed for a regional presence. I would imagine, Lowe, that you've accomplished the way you're describing that, what fewer than 3% of operators are able to do, if for no other reason, just the financing piece of it, which leads me to the question, how did you, you know, get from one to eight? Was that with your capital partner? How did that, all that work? You know, so combination of both, I mean, and, and personal money. I mean, obviously I've managed to, you know, I've invested in a lot of my own deals over the years as well. Um, you know, so I take some of the successes of the business and reinvest it or, or whatever the case may be. So in the last, in terms of assisted living and memory care, I've raised about $15 million in maybe t- about, yeah, let's just call it $15 million in private equity. So uh, we have multiple investors in our Denton project, our Lake Charles project, and then we have a few, and we have uh, still a decent number, but but not the same number of investors in our in a few of our Dallas care homes. So it's been a combination of both. Obviously, I've needed balance sheet support, right, deal to PG the, that type of debt, things of that nature. So it's been a combination of both. Um, you know, I'm a I'm a resourceful guy, and I try to cultivate resources. And you know, there's a lot of people that that want to invest in something that helps people. And so impact investing is definitely um, a big deal for a lot of investors. And uh, so we've been able to, to help have a bunch of investors invest in projects and, and, and have some success and have them, uh, you know, reinvest in some projects and things of that nature. So um, it's been a combination of both. And, uh, you know, we, there's some opportunity for us to get in a position to, you know, maybe be HUD owners and operators. And that certainly be a game changer because your leverage numbers change and your amortization numbers change. And, and more than that, you no longer have to offer personal recourse for development. Um, and so, you know, if it, development's one of those things where I remember when I was a little kid, my dad was friends with a guy that did a, did a bunch of business taxes. My dad was a CPA, but he never really did taxes. He always worked in a firm, like worked it for a company. He was always like an internal controller. And he said, this guy told him, he said, the two biggest losses and the two biggest wins he'd ever seen in his life were, were real estate developers. And uh, I just remember that as a kid. And um, now here I am, you know, pushing my chips in the middle every time I do a deal and there's personal recourse and personal guarantees. And, and you know, in theory, I, I'm, I could have one deal go wrong. And if it goes wrong in a certain type of way, you know, it could, it could wipe out everything that I've done. And I think as a developer, you, 
that's a part of your story. And then most developers eventually go, I don't want to do that for very long, right? So, um, you know, I've got a couple more years of that game and, and I hope to be retired from uh, personal guarantees. Um, the bank can bet on the project or the bank cannot. That's fine. Um, but the bank can't have everything that I've done for the last 40 years. So, and that's okay. So we, we've done that. And uh, so that's kind of a part of the journey. So we, we're working to get qualified to work with HUD. And if we do that, then uh, it'll be a game changer for sure. On the ones that you are, are involved in and have been involved in ground up are any of those complete oh yeah uh, lake charles is uh leasing two a week so we've got um we've got 35 residents in lake charles has capacity for 80 it's been open since august so uh two buildings are down currently due to a lightning strike which is hilarious because they're single story buildings but we started <laughs> okay. on that okay i have very bad luck when it comes to these things but right now it has an impact to us because we have 48 beds of capacity. So it'll take us about seven or eight weeks to fill the remaining beds. And then um, and then obviously we'll, we'll hope very hard that our fire alarm parts that are on back order from Korea will arrive in time so that we can continue to fill those uh, remaining 32 beds. Because so remember, there's, there's 16 bed communities. So um, yeah, so we're filling in a couple of weeks. So Lake Charles should be stabilized in May, just depending upon what happens with our fire alarm parts. And then Denton will come online and Denton will come online in May or June. And, you know, if it if it holds a similar trend, then uh, about uh, about a year, you know, year and a quarter later, it will be stabilized. What kind of competition is there in Lake Charles? There is none. Um, I mean, there's places, but uh, they're not competition. And they are they all houses? No, I mean they're 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 facility, and there's there's the major national chain there, and there's some other other places there as well. And and um, the Lake Charles story is kind of amusing. I I I did not intend to be the operator in Lake. I mean, I was going to be the partner that was the operator. I was going to kind of be the asset manager. But uh, when I went to so I went and secret shopped all the communities in Lake Charles, and then just sort of made note which ones are owner operated or which ones were third party managed. And frankly, I had such bad experiences with all of them that I couldn't wrap my mind around hiring any of them to run my community. So I just went to the partners. I'm like, uh, I guess I'm just going to do this myself. And they're like, okay. And I'm like, all right. And I just did it. So uh, I've, uh, I went into the market and um, I started saying who, you know, I said, okay, I just need to figure out who the executive director is that I need to hire. Um, that's the only position that matters. You get a good executive director, then you're off to the races. And, uh, you know, fortunately, we got a great executive director in Lake Charles. He's local, you know, and he's been there for a long time and he knows everybody. And that's been an invaluable resource for us to be successful in that marketplace. So my vision and his local connections have paired very well. And, you know, we've built a really great team down there and uh, we are just head and shoulders above anybody in the marketplace. We got the best product, the best team, and we are we probably are not even doing all that great of a job in the sales department and we are still moving two people in a week and it is it is fun to watch so we we are dominating that marketplace and has that been the two people a week has that been it's now mid-january of 2022 huge omicron you know numbers everywhere is that, and you're talking about two people a week, you're not talking about hundreds, but have you seen any slowdown or any, any sense of hesitance on prospective, you know, families and new residents or no? Well, not to introduce the political, but it seems like COVID's political in a weird way, which I don't really fully understand, but we'll roll with it. Um, there's definitely a political bent to this pandemic and this virus. 
being in Dallas, which is a blue city, and being in Lake Charles, which is a red city, just in terms of like who they vote for, Dallas has definitely slowed down when the virus is raging. And Lake Charles has not changed its pace based on the virus. If anything, it might be reversely causal. So it's very strange. You know, in Dallas, everyone's like, ah, we'll just wait and let things chill. Like, we don't want movers. We don't want this. We don't want to go out and look. And it's been a little bit. So the lead flow in Dallas has been slower than historically normal. That's a variable. Um, but of course, you know, Lake Charles is also a brand new build, you know, you know, nice community. So I can't say for sure if that's what the case is, but I just think in general, different markets are going to, I'll put it this way. If you go to DFW airport or you go to Love Field, right? The two main airports in Dallas, uh, what do you think mass participation will be inside the airport? What would you guess? 95%, 100%? What, what does mass participation mean? Just you know, people wearing masks inside an airport. Oh, right? mask, mask. Yeah, I thought you, I thought you said M A S S. I'm like, what's mass participation? No, what mask. would my, what would my guess be? DFW airport, right? It's required federally that you wear a mask in an airport. It's not like a negotiable thing. There's an FAA. What do you think the percentage of people that are wearing masks in DFW? Okay, and, well, and I've done, I've done uh, a fair amount of flying throughout the pandemic because my wife and I just were not ones to get caught, and we kind of, you know, we sure. were not paranoid, and we. We're just like we were always. So my guess is, and I'm probably going to be wrong, but I'm just going to guess 95%. I'm sure I'm wrong. But that would be my no. guess because I everybody's always wearing a mask everywhere I go yeah. in airports. Well, when I flew out of Lake Charles a couple of weeks ago, it was under 50. Oh, wow. Two an weeks airport. ago. Wow. Yeah, okay. airport. So I just, there's just, you know, there's just, you know, different markets have these different cultural approaches. And, and like, I'm not. Like, I want to be clear for the listeners. I'm not criticizing that or not. I'm just saying the proof's in the pudding. If we all know that at an airport, like it makes sense, like it's a travel hub, you're sharing air with lots of people coming from all over the place and, you know, just wear a mask. And uh, I've been to airports where like they're enforcing it and they're taking it seriously. And I've been in an airport where it's just a free for all. And so it sort of stands to reason that the airport that that's the free for all has the community that the leasing traffic does not slow down at all. <laughs> it, makes, it, it makes total sense. When you said you have the best product, what makes it the best product? Aside, or, or are you just talking about people or are you talking about amenities? No, no. I mean, I think we have, well, uh, it's a great question. It's, it's the best product for a class of clientele that is kind of twofold. So the first thing is, is that in healthcare, every, every place, everything is a compromise, right? There is no perfect in healthcare. There's no perfect in taking care of someone 24 hours a day. There's going to be decisions and compromises and things that get made. It just is what it is. But um, our focus is on great care, great food, great communication. So on those three metrics, we kick everyone's butt, hands down. We move people in. We have no customer pushback. The amount of attrition that we're seeing in our competitors. We have, if you can believe it, the longest tenured ED among our two closest competitors, and we're a startup. Yeah. Okay. okay. So um, we have the best t- the best product in that regard. Our building is new. Uh, we have short hallways, so it's very easy to navigate. You know, our bathroom packages are amazing. Um, it's a home like environment. We got a great campus. Um, you know, good. I'm biased, obviously, but what I would say is is that I think our customers are telling us you got the best product. Our team's amazing. So you know, we just have the best. We have the best building, the best concept, the best you know innovative thinking, and we have the best team. So it's just. I mean, we've we've been able to dominate that market, and and we're doing so under difficult conditions, right? That market 
set a record. It was the only market in history to ever have two named storms in the same season, had two hurricanes in the same year. You know, they, they, they're the only market in history to ever have four federally recognized uh, natural disasters in one 12 month period. They had, <laughs> they had the two hurricanes, that was two of four. They had the, the big freeze that hit the South, that hit them as well. And they also, on my birthday uh, last year, had the worst rain event I've ever seen. They got about 12 inches in, in a few hours. Wow. And it was incredible. And our site didn't flood. We had a little bit of water issues, but but we had quite a few of our uh, competitors flooded, you know, and some of our, you know, uh, partners that we work with flooded as well. And, you know, no city is designed to take 12 inches of rain in, in that amount of time, especially not one that was still cleaning up after a hurricane and had the infrastructure problems that came with that. So they've, that market's had some real problems. And so it's been really fun. Um, it's been hard, right? We've faced a lot of adversity and, you know, we're way behind schedule and every problem a developer could have, you know, I mean, I, I think I've probably got to have the most force majeure claims uh, uh, for a young developer in history, right? I've, I've got COVID claims and hurricane claims and just unbelievable things happening, but we've gotten through it all and we've gotten through it all and we are just kind of a battle hardened, you know, we are a tough, resilient bunch. And um, so, you know, it's really fun to help those people. I mean, we've had people that that got you know relocated and, and sent all over the place. We've had husbands and wives that were separated, um, you know, when the hurricane happened, and able to re come back together and live in the same household for the first time. So, it's been really, really fun and inspiring to uh, to be part of that marketplace. I have a, a, a somewhat of a non sequitur question. That's good. While I'm coughing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, if you survive this conversation, and it's this: are are the operating margins on a you know eighty bed facility higher than an eight bed you know converted house? Um, no, backwards. So in general business, operating margins are are the pure margins are better for smaller. They have to be just like you see cap rates being higher for small portfolios versus large portfolios, but it's just an accounting trick, right? Because how much of the owner or how much of the, uh, is, is unpaid labor, right? So when you're the owner and you're not paying yourself to, to do the functions in the business, yeah, sure. But no, that a lot of margin, like, you know, for example, you know, let's say my share of the care homes, you know, I made $200,000, right? Let's just say my care homes in Dallas made $200,000. Well, I've done a lot of work to get that $200,000, right? So, Maybe if I paid myself, like if I was the, if I paid myself, like I was the regional manager, my salary would have been, you know, half of that, you know, two thirds of that or whatever the case may be. So a lot of that is, is unfunded owner work in the business. And so I think the difference is, is that an 80 bed community is a real community with a closed loop system in which you can create enough revenue to hire every key piece of personnel that you need. You know, you can have you can have an executive director, an assistant ED, a DON, a, you know, ADON, you know, which is director of nursing, assistant director of nursing. You can have an activities coordinator. If you want to have a social worker, you can have one. You can have a marketer, you can have a salesperson. So, you know, it's it's really kind of analogous to, you know, owning a single family home or owning a owning an apartment complex. So the scaling definitely changes the game. And what it really does is allows it allows me to um, do what I do well. So in Dallas, I got to wear a lot of hats, less so these days, but, you know, it comes and goes. But in, in Lake Charles and Denton, um, I don't have to wear as many hats because I've got a team. You know, I've got, you know, when, you, when, when your revenue is 10x higher, you can 
you can, uh, you know, uh, take in uh, a lot more help um, to manage that revenue and manage those customers and to deliver the outcomes that you so passionately want to have happen. What What would you say, uh, and again, non sequiturs, we wind down, what would you say is the minimum amount of beds that can be managed well by a third party management company? Well, that's a loaded question because that implies that a third-party management company ever manages the place. Well, yeah, good, good point. Yeah, relatively speaking, I understand um, that. I don't know the answer to that, to be honest with you, just because we're we manage ourselves. Yeah, I hear you. And um, what I will say is, is that I I know my minimum standards are. I'm not really going to consider a marketplace much unless I can get to the mid 60s or 80s in bed size. Um, you know, um, I just think that anything smaller than that runs the risk of causing me to get sucked back into the operations, the day-to-day stuff. Um, and, and that's going to hamper future growth and become an opportunity cost, right? So, you know, so I, I think for me, 80 beds is kind of the number. If I can build five, 16 bed homes on a campus, it's doable. Um, 96 is good too. Um, I think 64 is is doable, but maybe flirting with disaster a little bit. So, you know, for me, I kind of look at 80 beds and up. You know, I think, uh, I think a project, you know, the general rule of thumb, um, you're going to pay between 200 and 300,000 a bed. That's just a general rule of thumb. Kind of depends exactly on all the details, but you know, a 96 bed community is going to be a $20 million project plus. Um, an 80 bed facility is going to be, you know, 16 million to uh, plus. So that, uh, you know, those are decent enough projects where you can have some success. And, and, and ultimately, you know, I think what's kind of funny is, is that um, when you get in business, you start to see revenue differently. You know, I think when you're an employee, you start like, oh, I'm going to start a business. I'm going to make all this money. And then when you start a business, you're like, I want to make all this money so I can hire a lot of people. Right. So for me, revenue, it's just it's fuel. It's, uh, you know, oil you know, for the machine, right? Revenue allows us, it's blood for the body. It allows us to go out and grab amazing people that care a lot about taking care of someone's mom or dad and then put them in a position to do what they do well, right? For us, revenue is just how we service the client, right? We have to have a successful business so that we can continue to keep raising standards for the people that we take care of that are vulnerable. Why would you do five homes, five 16-bed homes as opposed to one big 80-unit facility? Man, it's funny. Most of the time I do podcasts or shows, uh, that's the only question we talk about for an hour. So, uh, but you, you, you might have stupid. To... It took me an hour no, to get there. You might, you might have a secondary show. Um, but what I would say is, is that there's a lot of reasons, but um, just to kind of give you a quick high level thing, this is essentially the, the linchpin of my career. This is, this is why I've been successful is because I focus on this. So the first thing is, is that physical plants are very difficult to build with 80 beds. You've got long hallways, they're impersonable spaces. Um, states, uh, Louisiana and Texas in particular, um, they have a licensure change that happens when you go to 17 beds. You have to build a different physical plant. So uh, it's not conducive. You know, you have to do apartments instead of uh, bedrooms and suites, which sort of changes it. It's very difficult to make something home-like. Think about the length of hallways that you see in these big facilities. Sometimes they're 100 yards or more. My longest hallway is 50 feet. Um, think about infection control. I've got five front doors. If you've got one front door, it takes one person to come into the community and cause 80 people to get sick. Uh, I have to have five failures to get 80 people sick, right? So we crush infection control. Um, think about the food process. What's easier, cooking for 16 or cooking for 60, right? So, you know, it's hard to cook for large numbers of people and maintain quality. Um, and then, you know, when you cook it, uh, transportation's hard, right? You ever get food to go and it loses quality? So our kitchens are open uh, and allows us to deliver a food product that's fantastic. So it's food, it's care. 
Um, you know, there's some other things that we do that are a little bit differently operationally, but but other than that, we'll set all that aside. From a building perspective, the physical plan is very important because we can help people with mobility challenges. We can create better sight lines to prevent falls, and we can do better job on infection control. We can do better job on food. So it's just a far superior model. The problem you addressed already: small facilities don't scale. So what I did was I married the two concepts of scaling with boutique and intimacy. So I have a campus of care homes. Oh, it's so smart. Are you the first one to do that? I mean, that sounds like really simple, but ingenious. Um, no, there are other people that have done that. Um, I would only argue that the differences between us and them are I don't think they cut their teeth in the same business that I did. So I've seen some people that love care homes and then they go, they never owned one and never really run one before. And they go out and they build these campuses. And I think they make a lot of mistakes. So we have a few key selling propositions versus some of the other people that have done it. Um, but I think the difference is I cut my teeth in a care home, right? So I know what makes a care home work, what makes it not work, what I wish care homes had. You know, if you're a nurse and you're just like, oh, I admire the care home business and maybe you call on them and you're a hospice nurse or home health nurse and you call on them and you're like, oh, this is a better model. And then you're like, oh, I'm gonna, my husband's in construction, let's get together and we're gonna build this. You're going to miss some things because there's operational secrets that don't like get imparted to a person that visits once a week. And so, in my opinion, a lot of people that have done it, they've done it in a way that makes the home seem like really small, big buildings, right? The hallways are long. Because if you think about it, the cheapest thing you can do is build a rectangle, then have door, 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 door. But you kind of bastardize the concept. No home looks like that, right? So, there are other people that have done it. I would argue that our way of doing it is innovative. So, I think we're the first people to do it like we're doing it but um so i think we've improved on the mousetrap I, we, we did not we can't take credit for the concept there's plenty of people that have done it that are documented so no we, we're not the first to do this i just think we're doing it better in, in a unique way than anybody else got it hey your your passion is infectious i mean i i'm very very impressed with uh, your commitment and you know your excitement for what you're doing and um Hey man, I'm I buy the uh, low horn buckle story uh, all the way. How would one get a hold of you if one were to engage in a conversation and learn more about you and what you're doing? Sure. Yeah. So probably the best place to go is our operation. Well, I guess there's a lot of reasons someone could call. If you're in Dallas or Lake Charles or Denton and you're looking for your mom or dad, a place for assisted living, go to the sageoak.com, T-H-E-S-A-G-E-O-A-K.com. More often than not on a show like this, it might be someone that's interested in maybe taking the approach of investing or learning a little bit. Um, that would be our capital raising company, which is Goodhorn Capital. Um, so you can go to goodhorncapital.com and you can email me at low at goodhorncapital.com or you can email me at low at the sageoak.com. Uh, obviously, sageoak is for operations. Goodhorn is for investors, consulting, things like that. Got it. Well, you know what? You and I have had to work to get this thing on the, on the schedule, and I'm so glad we succeeded because this is, for me, it's been a wonderful conversation. And, um, you know, I, I hope that on the development front, you wind up one of these guys where all the chips are on the right side for you. Thanks. Uh, you know, I don't. I hope that I keep learning these hard lessons because I am... Uh I'm a developer cut from steel. I've been through everything you could go through in such a short period of time. I mean, I've lost a business partner. I've been through hurricanes. I've been through force majeure. I've been through a pandemic. So I've had every problem you could have as a developer happen. And and you want you know, more. And you want well, more. I, I, I know that uh, pain is a great teacher. And so I just accept it. And uh, I wouldn't be who I was today if it wasn't for the adversity. 
I one time said to my mother a long time ago, because she, she passed away a long time ago, oh, but the sorry. gist was, yeah, yeah, no, no problem. The gist was uh, I was up against something difficult. I don't remember what it was. I'm sure it was of my own making. And I said, Mom, look, it builds character. And she said to me, you already have enough character. anyway but god bless and i will talk to you soon sounds good thank you so much yeah you got it though see ya thank you mr becker have a great day you too (laughs) 